The Sundance Film Festival is returning to Park City, Utah, January 18th through the 28th. Check out the newly announced program of world premiere films, virtual reality, and events at sundance.org festival. Passes and ticket packages are available now, and tickets go on sale in early January. Magnolia Pictures is proud to release The Square, the new film from Force Majeure director Ruben Ostland, called Savagely Entertaining by the Los Angeles Times and Outlandishly Funny by Time Magazine, the Golden Globe nominated The Square is currently playing at the Film Society of Lincoln Center and in theaters across the country. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Violet Luca, the digital producer. I apologize for this being a day late. As you could probably hear, I'm a little under the weather. But I was feeling great when... Michael Koreski, editorial director at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Nellie Killian, film programmer. And... Andrew Chan, web editor at the Criterion Collection. Join me at the Toronto Film Festival last fall for a little sleepover. Sitting on an Airbnb bed covered in snacks, we discussed the films that we love to watch over and over again. Comfort movies, if you will. Here's our conversation. Thank you all for coming over. This is going to be fun. And cozy. You know, we feel we feel chilled out nice right now. But, you know, there's a lot of shit going on in the world. We, as people, what can we do? There's not a whole lot you can do, and sometimes it's easy to get dragged down and feel, like, totally helpless. So you need some comfort. And because we're movie people, we might seek that comfort in uh, movies or in food or alcohol and other drugs. Um, but t- tonight, we'll just be talking about the movies. Just the movies aspect. Talking about films that we go back to just reliably that we know are going to make us feel good. So, Nelly, you you like to go for the asexual male. Oh, well, that wasn't what I wanted to lead with. Um <laughs> Sorry. That was an aside. Um, (laughs) No. No. Um, It's actually... It was... You just reached for them, knowing they cannot reach for Yeah, it's safe. Uh, (laughs) No, it was something I noticed, like, after I'd already picked my film, that I uh, had picked both Mission Impossible, starring Tom Cruise, Mm. and It's Always Fair Weather, starring Gene Kelly. And I think what attracted me to them as comfort films is that they're both sort of set-piece films that often... When I want to watch them, it might be that I want to watch one scene or I think I just want to watch to a certain point. Mm-hmm. But then you always get sucked in when watch the whole thing. Yeah. And I was also thinking about sort of the format that like these comfort films take. And it's always fair weather is one that's online. You can watch like a scene. Mission Impossible is a movie that is maybe on every streaming platform. Like, there's never, like, a moment that you couldn't be watching Mission Impossible, like, if you have access to a screen. I feel like it's it's everywhere. It's on TV. It's on everything. Um, And it's something that I've often, you know, scrolling through these lists when you're like, what am I going to watch in a menu? If Mission Impossible is there, it's always a great option. Yeah. 
Yeah, that that sort of format or sort of access point becomes part of the comfort mechanism, maybe. Because comfort is something that I think is easily accessible. Yeah. 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 Actually, I think we had seen It's Always Fair Weather together at Film Society several years ago. Did you see that 35 millimeter print? I did. I saw it when it played there. Yeah, in the Gene Kelly retrospective, Mm -hmm. I think. And I think when we were coming out, we were just saying, you know, three music numbers in, you just realize, oh, there's like five more amazing sequences left to go. The first time I watched it, I got it on Netflix. And, you know, the way that uh, Netflix DVD service worked, I I don't think I even realized it was next to my queue. Mm -hmm. And when it arrived, I watched it and like, as soon as it ended, I started it again, and then I watched it again. It's I couldn't really get enough of it. I mean, it's, I think, number for number, the most exciting, like, pleasurable MGM musical, possibly. Mm-hmm. Well, what is it about for people who haven't seen it? Oh, it is, in a way, a follow-up to On the Town, uh, loose and not direct, but uh, three GIs who returned from... World War II, it starts off with a scene where they've just um, come back to New York. They're at a bar and, you know, it's their first night back in town. They're talking about how they'll be friends forever. And the bartender is skeptical and they make a pact that uh, if they don't all meet back here in 10 years, that, um, you know, he can have this money that they hide. You know, their lives sort of diverge and then it comes back to 10 years later in the following scene, and they all sort of do converge back on this bar, but uh, reluctantly and uh, under duress. Two of them are miserable, and one of them is happy, like kind of like a happy clown. Uh, he's the one that came back willingly, really. And their story gets picked up by a woman who's producing this talk show, uh, Madeline. And She's the best. She She's is the best character. Dolores Gray plays Madeline, the host of this sort of uh, This Is Your Lifestyle talk show. And she was a big Broadway star who has very few film roles, but just really kind of steals the show in this film. Sid Charisse is her producer, who is a woman genius. Mm-hmm. and Certifiable. <laughs> yeah. And um, she hears about these guys that have come back together that have all sort of fallen on hard times and are not connecting maybe as they meet again 10 years later and wants to get them on the show because she thinks it'll be a heartwarming story. But, you know, complications ensue. And each of the guys has, like, their own number. Uh, Dan Daly, another incredible Broadway star, has this song called Situation Wise where he's drunk and uh, dancing around this room with, like, a lampshade on his head. That is, I think, lyrically one of the funnest songs in MGM musical It's like history. Moses Supposes, right? It's like Moses For, Supposes, uh, exactly. Yeah, like one of the clowning songs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Gene Kelly, of course, is falling in love with Sid Charisse, who is a stuck-up producer, is sort of one-upping him at every turn. There's a great scene where she meets him at this boxing gym where he's training or managing this uh, fighter, and, you know, she wows everyone with her knowledge of boxing and does a great number called uh, Baby You Knock Me Out. 
Um, but, you know, she's like, you know, quoting, like misquoting Shakespeare. Turns out Gene Kelly's smarter than he actually is. Da, 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 smarter than he appears. Um, he tap dances on roller skates at one point. Oh, my God. That's yeah. the most amazing scene. One of the greats. Wait, yeah. And then in his final film, Xanadu. Yes. Where he only roller skates. Yeah. Olivia Newton-John cannot. But I, I mean, the whole thing, just like scene by scene, moment to moment is pure pleasure. Everyone is incredible. And yeah, I just can't get enough of the movie. I, I mean, it never feels to put a smile on my face. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting because it is pure pleasure. But I also think of it as one of the saddest of the MGM musicals, at least from what I remember of it. I haven't seen yeah, it in a while. I mean, it is. I mean, I think maybe pleasure for me <laughs> but uh it is like kind of a dark satire that it is this sort of um similar to the way that uh the bandwagon is a satire of like high art low art you know theater uh, singing in the rain has this like commentary on film this has a commentary on television and dolores gray's character is a very shallow Television host, Sid Charisse is very manipulative in um, trying to get them into this very palatable story for television. But, you know, of course, the way that they're overcoming it is, you know, it's, it's, joyous. Yeah. it's joyous. And um, it is. I mean, it's a satire and it's biting in many ways. I mean, Dolores Gray especially has a number of musical numbers where she's just selling products for her show that are just <laughs> these, like, Baroque vocals about you know cleanse right and oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh she has an incredible number about sugar daddies where she kills any man who is uh trying to buy her uh, <laughs> yeah this ha it has like a real almost like will success spoil rock hunter kind of feel oh, but yeah. mixed Definitely. with freed unit joy it's kind yeah. of an odd balance but it works of course perfectly because those people are geniuses yeah no it's funny i mean i can't believe that i didn't say straight off the bat that it has this like satirical element because you're overwhelmed with how just fun it is to watch moment to moment and like thinking back on it especially thinking scene by scene andrew i chose two movies that are not really connected in my mind, but I just think of as pure pleasure as well. But for me, when I think about the films or books or songs that I turn to for comfort, there's always an undertow of sadness or some grappling with reality. And so I I think both It's a Gift, which is the W.C. Fields film that I chose, and um, Comrades Almost a Love Story, which is a Hong Kong oh, romantic yeah. drama that I love. Both of them have that aspect of just sort of dealing with the uncomfortable realities of the world. And with It's a Gift, um, it's almost like a comedic inferno. Like W.C. Fields is sort of dealing with the day-to-day -day just aggravations of life and annoyances. I mean, to me, it's like one of the great films that deals with irritation, not like anger or fury, but just being annoyed and... I love, like you, I feel like it's a film that um, is easily separable into different set pieces. And so it's easy to access on YouTube and watch. Um, it's just a joyful film that has this dark undertow dealing with um, how you navigate a chaotic world. And for Comrades Almost a Love Story, 
I saw that first um, many years ago on a bootleg DVD. And I don't think it was ever theatrically released in the U.S. Um, but um, it's a film from 1996. And there's a lot of sentimental value for me just because it's a depiction of Hong Kong in the late 90s, pre the takeover. Mm-hmm. And it revolves around the music of Teresa Tang. Yeah, so I grew up with the music of Teresa Tang. And there's no other movie, even though there are so many Chinese films both from Hong Kong and the mainland that include her music sort of as this symbol of like the height of Chinese sentimentality and the the emancipatory power of romantic music and love ballads um, in a culture that was so dominated by um, political oppression for much of the 20th century. So there are a lot of films that use her music, including Platform by Jia Zhengke, uh, sort of from that political perspective. But this one in particular uses her music as sort of like a connective bridge between um, people in the Chinese diaspora. So the story involves Maggie Chung, who is from the mainland, and she moves to Hong Kong for a better life. But she keeps it a secret. But she keeps it a secret that she's a mainlander. She Mm -hmm. really wants to assimilate into Hong Kong culture. Mm -hmm. And then Leon Lai plays this Beijinger who moves to... Hong Kong as well and meets her and then discovers that she's from the mainland and they sort of hit it off in that way. And they they bond over their love of um, Teresa Tang's music. And it's a sort of typical uh, star-crossed lovers narrative. They go through, you know, a lot of trials and tribulations. They move to the U.S. Um, separately and they're separated. Um but the final sequence is absolutely amazing, and it all revolves around the death of Teresa Tang, which I vividly remember as a kid was an event similar to the death of Michael Jackson for everyone in the Chinese-speaking community. Mm-hmm. And I was probably seven or eight at the time, and I still remember where I was when I heard that news. And so when I finally saw that movie, it sort of gave, it was sort of like a manifestation of everything that I felt and everyone around me in my family felt when they um, found out that she had died. Mm-hmm. I had only seen that film recently for the first time about a year ago because Aliza Ma programmed it at the Metrograph, yes. so I got to see it on a print. Ma- um, Maggie Chung Retro, that was so good. This was actually, the, must be shown again, this was actually before that. This was <sighs> one of the fir- the Welcome to Metrograph movies you have to see. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it's one of her favorite films of all time. And when you said you were choosing it, I, not even thinking about the Teresa Tang yeah. connection, I thought this was like the most perfect film because it's so much about finding people in a crowd mm-hmm. and people who either finding or not finding, but that sense that there is some sort of, I don't want to say greater power, but some sort of a design to everything mm-hmm. is, is a comfort. And I yeah, found it, and, it was really moving. I mean, it's a tearjerker. Oh, yeah. And it's... Um the depiction of pop music as the force that does that mm-hmm. um, is maybe the best that I've ever seen in a commercial film. And pop music that has cultural identity yeah, and bridging people from different walks of life and different parts of the Chinese diaspora. Really, there was no other singer who did that like Teresa Tang. She was, she was born on the mainland, but she moved to Taiwan and she was able to sing in all 
different. She was basically a Pan-Asian superstar. And so she not only was she able to sing in Mandarin and Cantonese and other dialects, but she also sang in Japanese. So the power of that, um, especially at a time when the different communities in the Chinese-speaking world were growing more and more distant from each other, um, politically, ideologically, and culturally, the power of seeing that woven into romantic drama to me, it still resonates. And of course, this came out a year before The Handover. And mm -hmm. so it was um, a pretty monumental time for Hong Kong society. But Teresa Tang, even at that time, she was sort of this classic figure hearkening back to a more simple vision of what um, romance and sentimentality um, in a Chinese context means. And so even with all this political turmoil, this movie is able to sort of locate something that's ageless and timeless. I think the first two movies that came to mind for me were these sort of joyous movies that I watched that like really just put me in a good mood. But then I realized that actually when you're feeling down, sometimes sinking into a melancholy feeling mm -hmm. is really what you're after. Yeah. And Jerome Hill's Merry Christmas is a movie that for me, does that. It's a short film by Jerome Hill, who's like a avant-garde filmmaker from primarily the 60s and 70s. And this movie is a short movie that has a animated, almost um, stained glass-like Mary and Joseph looking for room in midtown New York City <laughs> in the 70s. And they're moving through these cityscapes, this sort of like beautiful sort of apparition of animation and you hear the soundtrack of just these bells of Salvation Army and you know the sort of sounds of New York at Christmas time which for me I think actually when I I'm really in a bad mood taking a walk through New York City is the way that oh, I actually yeah. cheer myself yeah. up so you know sort of replicating that feeling and in specifically at Christmas time which is my favorite time of the year in New York and also real a real time when you're sometimes down yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. It's like the end of the bla blast of silence. That movie exactly. captures that so brilliantly. Yeah. And, you know, it's dark. And um, this movie just sort of captures that feeling of walking around the city and with this beautiful, beautiful animation and also this sort of classic New York that is extremely nostalgic mm -hmm. and also just sort of like taps into this thing that if you're sitting, if you're sitting at your desk, if you can't like actually take a walk mm -hmm. is yeah. a very good substitute. Yeah, nostalgia is a very comforting aspect of these movies. And Comrades Almost a Love Story actually is a great New York movie, even though it doesn't actually get to New York until the very end. But in the final sequence, the two star-crossed lovers, they're sort of roaming the streets and they sort of happen upon this storefront that has these TVs that are broadcasting news about the death of Teresa Tang. And I have watched that sequence so many times because... There are moments that are set on Doyer Street, which is one of the oldest existing streets in Chinatown. Mm -hmm. And like Namwa Dim Sum Place yes. is still is there yeah. and still exists. And yeah, just being able to see those streets and imagine Maggie Chung, who is such a legend, you know, walking down these streets is really inspiring and really magical. Um, well, speaking of nostalgia and Christmas, um, my first choice is a film that I, I know I'm not alone in loving, and I 
pretty sure I'm not alone in finding it to be a comfort film, which is another Freed Unit musical. Mm. It's Meet Me in St. Louis, Vincent Minnelli's film starring Judy Garland and, of course, Margaret O'Brien. The, wonder, the wonderful and terrifying young Margaret O'Brien playing Tootie. Oh, God. Who Violet finds it horrifying. <laughs> that um, movie is grotesque. <laughs> yeah, it is strangely it's also, grotesque. It's hard for me to separate Margaret O'Brien as a child from Margaret O'Brien constantly being interviewed on TCM. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a kid. Yeah. Yes. yes. Um, well, I find her to be a complete delight, though though it is <laughs> that is complicated by the fact that the character she plays is a death obsessed weirdo, which I think is one of the great things about the movie. Um, Mimi in St. Louis is that perfect mix of melancholy and joyfulness. It's the two extended brilliant sequences are Halloween and Christmas, so I'm always torn every year when I watch it. Mm. I watch it as a, as a comfort film at both of those times. So, and I like to watch it once a year. So I have to decide, is it a Halloween year or is it a Christmas year for me in St. Louis? Cause the Halloween sequence in this film is, um, nuts incredible. And it's also hugely influential. It was also almost completely cut from the film. They almost oh. made oh, wow. Manelli cut the entire sequence and he had to fight to keep it in the movie. Well, how would it make sense without that? They were just going to go straight to Christmas. I mean, they, I know it really, is a little confusing because yeah. so much plot is there. But in terms of just the sequence where they go out and start the bonfire and mm-hmm. go to the neighbors' houses and throw flour in their face, they were thinking these kids are too violent. This is actual. This this is actual violent but behavior. It, it really promoting violent behavior. Yeah. The scene where she decapitates her father's snowman wouldn't make sense without that initial violence, though. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. We'll get to that snowman. Um, <laughs> A very uncomplicated, I, I would say uncomplicated reason why I find it to be a comfort is that is a movie about a big, bustling, loving American family. And I've been watching it since a very early age, and it instilled in me a desire to have a family like that, because I don't come from a big family. I always wanted to be in a house with lots of cousins, aunts, uncles, siblings, parents, grandparents, they're all under the same roof. And uh, it, of course, obviously it takes place in St. Louis. It's on the cusp of the World Fair uh, at the turn of the century. And they're all preparing for this big change that's coming to their town. And the complication in, that ensues is that the lawyer father is getting a job. He's being transferred to New York. So this is devastating to the family because they love their hometown, but they're going to have to leave up by Christmas. Um, of course, things end totally fine, of but that's actually a really major conflict. It might sound minor to an adult, but to the family, to the children especially, this is about as tragic as it gets. Mm-hmm. So you get to know each member of the family, um, but especially the daughters. So it's Judy Garland and Lucille Bremer playing her also redheaded sister. And of course, Margaret O'Brien, who again is this sort of twisted little girl who buries all of her dolls in the backyard, talks about how each of them had a different disease. Um, I don't know why you don't like like this character. It sounds like Uh. it might've been you as a child. (laughs) I'm rejecting her because it's me. Yes. You see the dark mirror. I'm like, no, no, I put that away. No. She's narcissistic. Um, She's (laughs) right at me. (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) I told you this, this is a sleepover. The truth comes out. Jesus Christ. Um, (laughs) I'm going to run in the bathroom and lock myself in and cry. (laughs) 
We're gonna do Bloody Mary later. Yay! Um, sorry, I lost my train. <laughs> we were going through who each of us are in that. <laughs> Of the sisters. I'm Judy. Yes. Andrew Chan is Judy. If we said otherwise, he would leave this room right now. Definitely. But then, who am I? I want to be Judy. We can both be Judy. Okay, great. <laughs> who are you? No one else wants to be. Lucy are you brother Lon? No. Are you the boring brother Lon? I don't think no. so. I'm the boring older sister that has the really frustrating phone conversation. Oh my god! Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, there's a scene where the yeah. where she she's hoping for a proposal from her beau, and he's calling from a New York trip, and the whole family is listening in. And it's a it's like a perfect encapsulation of what the movie's about, right? The family's always there. It's ever present it's intrusive yeah. but you can't escape them it was actually the first scene i thought about when you were talking about the large family that that scene and i think it is like a comfort movie thing that like her intonation as she's like talking onto the phone is something that's like always in my mind my whole family's here and they don't think a thing of it yeah. <laughs> but right. then the the flip side one of my other favorite scenes is the scene where they're putting out the lights where it's that is a rare, beautiful that's scene that's one of the greatest scenes ever shot as yeah and it's like this rare moment of being alone in this bustling house. Mm-hmm. Everyone Being, has gone to bed, yeah. and and the the boy next door, of course, mm-hmm. John Truitt, has come over and he's escorting Judy Garland around the house as she slowly puts each light out, and the camera, uh, you know, as on a boom pole, just kind of glides around the house, and f- it just goes up and watches each light go out one by one, and then as soon as the last light goes out, the light from the stained glass window comes streaming in. It is so gorgeous as she sings the song over the banister. Um, which was sampled in Terrence Davies' Long Day Closes in a beautiful moment. It's this, yeah, it's the sense of the house itself having like an inner spirit, its own kind of life. In that moment, that's when you realize to move out of this house would be truly tragic. Yeah, and how much of the way that they interact with the house and each other is who they are. Right, and how it changes through the seasons, because this is how it is. So... I watched that film because it's spectacular filmmaking and it gives me those cozy feelings, but also because it it sort of um, supplies the things that I kind of wish I had. I guess comfort movies can do that. And there's a certain melancholy to that as well. I wish that my Christmases were like that. I wish my Halloweens were like that. And they never can reach that ideal. But Mimi in St. Louis is always there to give me the ideal every single time. I love that movie. I, I love particularly that even the throwaway scenes are so good. Like The Boy Next Door which isn't really one of the top musical numbers that people think of when they think of this movie. But it's just a beautiful vocal performance from her. She's just and sitting there just at like the window. peak Judy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's, this movie, one more tiny anecdote to uh, a, a friend, a critic of ours who might be listening. Uh, we had gone to see it many years ago at Film Forum because it was the first time I got to see it in a print. I watched it a lot a lot growing up in VHS and I went to see it with uh, our friend Nick Pinkerton and when it was over we were, I mean we were sitting at the bar and we had had a couple drinks and he said meet me in St. Louis he's like that fucking movie is just so and then he trailed off he went his eyes got distant he never finished the sentence Aww. I'll never forget that and we both think it's one of the 10 best movies of all time yeah all three of you have been talking about films that maybe have a little bit of um, sadness in them or something, you know, a little bit of taste of melancholy. And I actually, um, when I was preparing for this, a friend of mine who I've known 
for over 10 years and I, and she's always had, I guess, um, connective tissue problems and her health has taken a turn for the worse recently. And she is going through a hard time and she posted on Facebook, like, can people just recommend me like comedies that have absolutely no existential angst or anything dark about them? Just something that like make me feel better right now. So I went to my keyboard and I typed out one word. Step Brothers, <laughs> and then I also typed out actually, and then I typed out Anchorman because Adam McKay is just like really a, a master. Uh, our, our, he's you know he's a he's a great um, satirist, but then also he made Step Brothers, which is just a really just every time I watch it, I laugh at it more. Um, <laughs> do I have to describe the plot <laughs> in incredible detail, please? Okay. Yeah. So, well, actually, one of the funniest things I've ever read, somebody, tra- some people translated what Kaidu Cinema wrote about Adam McKay and specifically Step Brothers. And the shit they say is so fucking wild. It's just like from a French perspective. And they're like, oh, yes. Um, <laughs> I can't even like, it's like goofy French you know, like French film criticism. Guys, <laughs> I was I was just like crying with laughter. They describe John C. Riley as being like this mischievous schoolboy in his uniform, and I'm like, we don't have fucking school uniforms in the U.S., you guys. <laughs> like, what the fuck are you talking about? But the basic plot is that there is a a divorced uh, woman played by Michael Kreski favorite. Uh, Love Mary Steenburgen. Mary Steenburgen. Oh, yeah. So Mary Steenburgen, she has an adult, she's two adult sons. One is this total go-getter, like, and complete asshole played by Adam Scott. And the other still lives at home. And he's played by our dear man with uh, janky teeth and just like the funniest fucking guy who always make me laugh and brings me back to a time in high school, just like consistently being like he, his George W. Bush was so good. Will Ferrell. And so Mary Steenburgen is at a conference um, and uh, she's presenting and she catches the eye of uh, this, you know, divorced dad who also has a fucked up uh, lame son at home who is John C. Riley. And the divorced people get together. They have passionate sex, hilarious, passionate sex, and then they get married and uh, they have to blend those families and um first the stepbrothers don't get along they hate each other and uh they do totally like asinine what makes a movie so funny is that they're not just sort of man children they are literally children like everything about them yeah, they like, wear pajamas they wear pajamas you they see- sleepwalk and they they put their pillows <laughs> oh, in the oven but the way that he sleepwalks is just so ridiculous it is sort of perfect it's one of those movies that it does get funnier the more you watch it i, I really yes. don't know why most a lot of most comedies you watch the first time you laugh you get the jokes you don't want to revisit them every time that's on i forget just how funny it was yeah no i mean it's just like little things like the fact that they both have to sit in the back like they're in car seats <laughs> just like the way that they're shot and then like um when they're at dinner and mary steenburgen and the other actor i can't richard remember, jenkins richard jenkins the wonderful are, are enjoying like these wonderful glasses of red wine <laughs> well Farrell is there with like this giant glass of like purple stuff or like some like kids kids juice like there's no other way to describe it and it's not like he like adam mckay dwells on these details they're just there and they just but the more you watch it the more they just like pop out at you i need to give shout out to my favorite scene in the movie which is the video 
that they make while they're on the boat. <laughs> but that's not even like the funniest thing. For, it's like, when he, pretty when he funny. Kills him, when he thinks he kills him and he tries to bury him. <laughs> that's so funny. Oh my God, I killed my brother. Oh no. <laughs> I think I mean, you lost the your, physical you lost comedy it. of the sleepwalking scene is it's one sublime. of my favorites. It's good. Uh, it's uh, one of the finest comedies ever made. I'm going to say yes. Pretty bold. It's, I don't give a shit. <laughs> like, put the lady even playtime on the list. Yada, 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 yada. I would rather watch Step Brothers right now than playtime. Well, yeah, big, big surprise. <laughs> I mean, it's a great movie. It's a great movie. Love but playtime uh, as well. Yeah. But if we're going to pop a movie in for the sleepover. It's going to be Step Brothers. Yeah, you don't, you don't write for Coyote Cinema. You're not, you're not <laughs> one of those guys. <laughs> The Film Comet Podcast is sponsored by Magnolia Pictures. Magnolia Pictures is proud to release The Square, the new film from force majeure director Ruben Ostland, called Savagely Entertaining by the Los Angeles Times and Outlandishly Funny by Time Magazine. The Golden Globe nominated The Square is a precisely observed, thoroughly modern comedy of errors, a film with laughs and ideas in equal measure. The Square is currently playing at the Film Society of Lincoln Center and in theaters across the country. The Sundance Film Festival is returning to Park City, Utah, January 18th through the 28th. Check out the newly announced program of world premiere films, virtual reality, and special events. Plus, get the lowest rates on lodging at sundance.org festival. I think because Sleepover was in the prompt email, mm -hmm. I actually took it to mean not just comfort movies, but movies that you would want to watch at a sleepover. Totally. Because there are comfort movies that you watch alone. Yeah. And there's comfort movies that you want to share with friends. Mm -hmm. Totally. Well, also, it made me think about my actual sleepover history. Yes. Which, I, the one that I remember the most was 1987. And that would, that would be my eighth birthday. And what I did was I subjected people to four movies in a row. I, this was, like, this was the greatest moment of my life, basically, because I actually got like six or seven friends to agree to sleep over and to watch four movies in a row with me. And I planned the whole night out and it was space camp to start hmm. Ferris Bueller's day off little shop of horrors. And of course, poltergeist to of finish, course. which terrorized everybody, but nobody could ever enter my house without being shown poltergeist. And I, I'll, then the parents sometimes wouldn't let them come back. But that, that was my that was my sleepover triumph for those four films. So actually, your second movie, Michael, is one that is a sleepover touchstone for me. Rosemary's Baby. That's a sleepover touchstone for you? Mm -hmm. Meaning that when you were younger, you made young people watch it? Meaning when I was nine. <laughs> no. I, oh, no. <laughs> I went... I was staying at a friend of the family's house who there was a girl my age and then an older brother who I think picked the VHSs. Rosemary's Baby was one of them and we watched it and it scared me obviously so badly. <laughs> I mean, it disturbed me on a level that made an indelible, indelible impression and also made it one of my favorite movies of all time because I had to keep on watching it. Mm. Like obsessively to unpack that yeah um well i'm glad you brought it up because yeah. i was waiting for someone to give me the perfect segue to talk yeah. about my next movie which might seem a little odd i almost didn't want to talk about it for a comfort movies podcast because i'm sure for a lot of people and probably especially a lot of women it's anything but a comfort that movie is extremely disturbing 
because it's all about a woman losing control of her body and the people around her who are taking it from her. Uh, a good double feature is uh, this and After Tiller. Oh, great idea. <laughs> I actually did that one time because <laughs> I had to I had to write about After Tiller. Was this your sleepover double feature? Oh, no, 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 no. I was actually staying at somebody's house and I was like, you know, I've never seen Rosemary's Baby. They have it on DVD. I'll watch it. Oh shit, it's getting late. Better watch after Tiller. Oh no, I'm crying. I'm gonna be up all night. <laughs> all right, so don't listen to Violet. It's not a comfort movie. Um, the, Definitely not. Definitely not. The reason the reason I th- love it so much and the reason I go back to it over and over again, it is also one of my favorite films of all time, is because there's a such a pleasure to the perfect storytelling. And I think mm, that is one yeah. of the things that brings me great comfort. Knowing um, knowing that everything locks into place so perfectly. I mean, I, famously, Polanski says, you know, it was my first Hollywood film. I was basing it on this best-selling novel and I thought what I was supposed to do was just make the novel. So I put everything from the novel in there. So it's it's a, you know, nice, it's a fine novel, but it's a great movie. So it's, but it's great storytelling in both cases. So he just kind of adapted basically every single scene. Mm-hmm. And he he says that is kind of a joke, and and I wouldn't advocate that for every film, but it maybe more filmmakers should have actually just done that. If you have a great book, just make that book. Yeah. I mean, obviously he visualized it in some incredible ways, but it has that perfect unfolding, the perfect uh, rising and release of tension. Every performance is just spectacular. I mean, Ruth Gordon. I watch it over and over again, basically, so I can see Ruth Gordon and her intonations, everything she says, every, oh the way she says everything in that movie is so funny. So good. it's also funny. It's a hilarious movie. Yeah. You know, I'll say, so at not obviously nine is too early to watch Rosemary's baby. If there's any parents out there, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I watched it and I just did not understand it. And then, but I, it made this impression on me that I wanted to understand it. You know, it was such a formative thing to see it that anytime it was on television, I would watch it, you know, I would rent it in high school and watch it. And it was with every viewing more came into focus, why it disturbed me even at nine, that sort of what's happening to Rosemary, no one believing her, you know, all these things that like, you know, sort of understanding why I was upset was a comfort Mm -hmm. um, upon dozens and dozens and dozens of repeat viewing of the movie and also like eventually getting past my discomfort with it to being able to just enjoy it mm. that it be, it was something I had to figure out because it um, affected me so much when I was young that I had to rewatch it and rewatch it and rewatch it mm. to like get over that and as I did I started to just really love it and I love Minion Roman so much mm-hmm. and mm. you know now however many years later if a coven of cosmopolitan Satanists wanted to take me under their wing, I would just (laughs) (laughs) be completely on board. You know, it's like now I watch it and I'm like, what a New York story. Yeah, I totally know what you mean. I mean, you know, it's still horrifying. However, there is like an element of it where it, I always, even at nine, the part where Roman pretending that the reason they're leaving is because he's sick. And he's like, I only have a few months to live, so we're going to go back to some of our favorite locations around the world. We'll be in Budapest. I was like, Ugh, what a way to live. You know, like, <laughs> like it's, it was like, and Dubrovnik. Yeah. I, you know, I really now watch it and just completely, um, 
you know, trying to be mini and Roman. Those are my goals. <laughs> I'm sort of fascinated by the way it creates pleasure again, because it's such a disturbing film. I've always wondered that of all the horror films. And I, I I'm a, I'm a horror film fan of all the horror films I've ever seen. It's the one that feels the most purely pleasurable. And I do think it has to do with a sense of humor, obviously, but I do think it has to do with this kind of like perfect storytelling. Right. So every time a new scene begins, I think, oh my God, I'm so happy it's this scene. And it happens scene after scene after scene. Mm -hmm. There's something exciting, funny, fun, scary, and pleasurable in every single scene in that film. And also like something that like unlocks about the story. Right. Everything every, pushes yeah. it ahead. Everything yeah. has a clue. All the, the ways that you come to find out that he helped get the actor voiced by Tony Curtis yeah. um, mm. blinded, you know, because of the stealing of the glove. Right. Oh, no, mm -hmm. the glove is Hutch. It's the tie. He, they find out later that he yeah, exchanged yeah. ties. John Cassavetes, of course, like the height of like incredibly hot, demonic. Oh, yeah. Yes. Actor, like Smoldering. narcissism. Um, <laughs> yeah. And um, we should give a shout out to um, Ralph Bellamy, of course, who plays yes. Dr. Saperstein. Yeah. One of the great side characters in any movie. It's sort of a segue to Mission Impossible, I think, too. From Polanski to De Palma. Yes, yeah. because... Part of my pleasure in that movie is that the way that it unfolds is that they always like reveal like this piece of gum, you do this, and then you wait for that to be deployed. Like they describe how they're going to infiltrate something and then they infiltrate it. But it is all just, you know, setting you up for what you're going to see and then showing it to you in a spectacular way that it's so satisfying. There's a level of storytelling in it that is just like, it's satisfying and it's so contained, you know, mm. that it's, it sets it up and then pays it off, you know, within a matter of minutes. Well, I mean, how thrilling that it was De Palma who did it because who's better at the intricate set piece, mm -hmm. right? So that kind of film is usually by the book, but I feel like that movie was really full of surprise, especially for a television adaptation. Mm. Yeah, no, I was just going to say that there's a level at which it, it doesn't even matter how disturbing or joyful or um, what the content of the film actually is or what the plot is. Like when you're in contact with a film that is so perfectly constructed and gives such a beautiful, exquisite narrative shape to whatever it's talking about, you're sort of in contact with what is so intoxicating about cinema. And it's really just about being transported out of whatever rat reality that you're trying to escape and be comforted mm. within. I do think, it, I do think it, it all comes back to, in a certain way, the, the actors, though, right? We have oh, to yeah. talk about, we can't talk about Andy's films without the performances. I don't think oh, I yeah. would return to a movie over and over and over again if it wasn't something in the actor's the, the way they look, the way they move, the way they talk that I want to keep revisiting, like we were saying about Ruth Gordon. But I mean, even Mission Impossible, right? I mean, mm -hmm. Tom Cruise is really fun to watch. Yeah, Tom Cruise is fun to watch. And also Mission Impossible. I mean, all the Mission Impossibles are fun to watch. John Voight is so good in one as the villain. I mean, he just has the perfect demeanor, the perfect face for that face actually being a rubber mask. Uh, <laughs> it's true. It's yeah, so true. And like having it ripped off. Uh Emmanuel uh, Barrett is in it. It's who else? Ving Rhames, um, Jean Renault, uh, Kristen Scott Thomas, mm -hmm. um, and someone else. I mean, it's like an incredible cast. And I mean, they're all just great. And also it's, 
getting back to <laughs> the sort of asexual male leads uh, that we started with, <laughs> you know, Tom Cruise is kind of sexy in it. And I think it's like one of his last roles where he was even, this before Jerry Maguire. It was one. It was one. I was going to say it's like contemporary, or, basically. Mm-hmm. That was like, yeah, year. his peak. Were they both yeah. 96? They might have, yeah. They're both 96. Which is crazy because Magnolia's 99, right? And already that's sort of like riffing off of his creepiness yeah he moves into something else after that but like this is still just him at like charisma which i think is not i mean in later uh mission impossibles he's just a machine yeah yeah uh but he's like really like a (laughs) 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 i just ate a dorito you know, he's kind of like the spunky team leader in this one in a way that he isn't in the later ones. John Voight really is the sort of mastermind and he's more the, he has just like a different vibe that he completely lost at some point. How do you feel about the sequels? I... Because there's so many now. There are five Mission Impossible movies and some of them are good and some of them are okay and one of them is bad. In my opinion. Is three the bad one? I think choose the bad one. The one by John Woo? I think the John Woo one's bad. Some people would disagree with you. Well, too bad. I enjoyed it. (laughs) I I think the John Woo one is boring. Uh, (laughs) But I love four. Uh, You did four. Four is Brad Bird, and that's that has great set pieces. I mean, really, really good set pieces. And five is like Christopher McQuarrie, yes, yes. who is, I believe, like Tom Cruise's like preferred director at this point. He's mm-hmm. done a number writer of... writer of Usual Suspects, right? Uh, I don't know. I mean, he's good. I mean, five is good. Five is the third best, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> the fourth best is three. <laughs> kind of not following this. Um, it's funny, uh, I was thinking... Sorry, but the, they're all, I mean... I would say that one, four, and five of the Mission Impossibles all have that sort of set piece structure where it really is just this describing how to infiltrate the bank, infiltrating the bank, you know, whatever it is, uh, that it is just this very satisfying storytelling uh, with one really being the masterpiece. Mm. But they're all sort of infinitely watchable. See, that's what I didn't like that. Here's what we're going to do. Now watch me do it is what I did absolutely hated, hated, hated about Ocean's Eleven. Like, I tried watching that, and I just, like, I'm like, I, like, this is boring. And then, and then they would be like, oh, you'll notice that we didn't do what we said we were going to do. Well, this is why. And then they would flash back and show it. I'm like, ah, come on, just do stuff. Don't tell me. I mean, it's kind of the classic heist setup, it though. It is, I know. Yeah. I know. So heist movies, maybe not for me so much. Yeah. Um, But... I do love uh, revenge movies, which are just as, I guess, predictable. It's like, you know what the arc is going to be and you know what how they have to get there. But there's just something, I guess, I'm just allergic to exposition. I, I think it, you know, it all depends on the execution. Yeah. And I think in Mission Impossible 1 especially, mm-hmm. it, it works. Yeah. Uh, and it does sort of like set you up what they end up being able to do is they sort of like walk you through something so that then they can do a very extended sequence with no dialogue, you know, mm-hmm. where they've like laid out this architecture of the scene and sort of like everyone's role. And then it just, they're able to execute it in a way that is very seamless. Mm-hmm. 
I wanted to go back to what you were saying for a minute about performances, because that's what, I mean, that's the central feature of It's a Gift um, and all of W.C. Fields' films. Yeah, I mean, he's so fascinating because I'm not a particular expert on early early comedy or even a particular lover of it, but sort of in that lineage of comedians of the chaotic, like Chaplin or Keaton, all the way up to um, Tati, um, he's my favorite. And I think part of it is just, he's so idiosyncratic and everything about his um, expressions are so particularly him. And because he started out in vaudeville and sort of was part of early sound cinema, you sort of realize what a miracle it is that cinema was invented in time to capture his amazing performances and his amazing set pieces, most of which originated on the stage on Broadway, I believe. But he's idiosyncratic, but at the same time, he reminds me so much of curmudgeonly people in my family. Like he's sort of like the platonic ideal of the cinematic curmudgeon. And so I remember first seeing that film and being so struck by his performance. And I was probably, I want to say 11. And it just reminded me of all my just like grouchy uncles in Asia. And, you know, it's so for me, it's like that film captures how strange he is, like behaviorally and expressively, but also is able to open onto all my memories of people who are similar. It's amazing the level of sort of hatefulness he can pull off yeah, and still make it just so funny and relatable. Well, I mean, it's yeah. like yeah. beyond almost anyone I can think of. Well, that, exactly. Well, pe- I think British comedy is a lot like peep show is the obvious thing where it's yeah. just like they take you so far down this route that you're like, oh, my God, I. Wait, I'm I you because you see how like fundamentally monstrous both of those two guys are, and then you're like, oh shit, I sometimes think that too, and it's like we're all like I get like making fun of like the ne- the necessary nastiness that is being a person for ninety nine point nine percent of all people on this planet, except for those like super nice ones and who just like don't hate anybody and they just float along. Well, so, which just seems fake. Well, also, like, you can tell stories about people like that that are funny, even if it's not funny while it's happening to you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, every single set piece is like a nightmare, basically. Yeah. But the way he does it, it's weird because I, I felt weird about choosing it as a comforting film because there's so much misanthropy at the core of it mm-hmm. and even a little bit of misogyny, too, with his, uh, his shrew of a wife. But the way he's able to navigate and sort of glide through all of this chaos in every single scene. And what I love is that early sound cinema, there's something about it where there's just more silence or like more pauses and, Mm -hmm. you know, music isn't sort of stuffed in to fill in these gaps. And it's almost like contemplative. There's a... I think part of what like softens it is that it seems like there's a palpability to how ignored he is. Yes. Yeah. You and know, it's not like the things that he's saying to them are like sting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he's, it's weird because he, he's able to transform this um, hatefulness and misanthropy and just like seething rage into something that's almost graceful. So it's interesting to think about the, the actors 
who appeal to you and the actors who don't, right? Because, I mean, there are, there are probably movies, great movies, like the greatest movies, people's favorite movies of all time that I will watch once and never watch again. Mm-hmm. And it's probably something to do with I'm not responding to the actors on a personal level. And maybe it's like you're saying, it's something mm-hmm. in your family. It's something that you don't even know that you're right. responding to. Well, I think one interesting thing for me with It's Always Fair Weather is that Gene Kelly has always been someone who I don't really respond to. Interesting. But I do... I'm so attracted to him. Me too. Yeah. Opposite. Wow. Um, He's so beautiful. I I find him... Um, I feel like when I learned the adjective thirsty, uh, to me it was like, oh, like Gene Kelly. I don't find him yeah. that way at all. That's such a completely different reading. For I me. mean, for, for me, I mean that that it, it probably comes down to something as simple as like that prowess, that physical specimen is so impressive to me. I know that there's so much discipline went into it, and that actually kind of is attractive to me. So I grew up watching a lot of musicals on television, and for whatever reason, the Fred Astaire ones were on more, and I just loved them. And I find him so effortless. And I, you know, Gene Kelly is square jawed and everything. I get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, um, square jawed and round butted. Yes, as yeah. true. As I mean, I, I don't know if you guys have seen the tum- Tumblr yes. dedicated yes. to his butt. I was about to bring it up. It's yeah. called um, uh, Gene, Gene Kelly's, Kelly's butt. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <dot tumblr>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, there's just, was something so much suaver about Fred Astaire to me. And I think there's also something with Gene Kelly where he often couches his athletic, his mm. physical prowess as athleticism oh, yeah. as if um, just being that physically impressive because he's a dancer is too feminine. That well, that's, seems that's, that's that was his, that was his psychological hangup. That's, yeah, that's I know, and it, problem was. it reads to me in a way that I, I find very off-putting. I mean, and I I don't think it's dissimilar to the way that Tom Cruise like does all his own stunts, right? You know, it's exactly the same thing. Yeah. Yet you're attracted to Tom Cruise. No, I'm not. Oh, at oh all. these are both men. So the <laughs> movies, the me. movies that you chose are men that I am are two men you don't sexual men that yeah. I like can see. And understand <laughs> are attractive, but I find like completely asexual. Wow. Yeah, I I feel the same. I can yeah. see it with Tom with Tom Cruise. I do find Tom Cruise asexual, but not Gene Kelly. Gene Kelly is just like pure dose of Hollywood sex and to me. I actually never understood why people. <laughs> I never understood why people preferred Fred Astaire because for me, as someone who's not an expert in dance, I always found him almost a little stiff. Mm. And I understand the prowess and everything, but there was something like so loose limbed about Gene Kelly. Part of it is also maybe the costuming. Like he I think it's the his, costuming. I had his sleeves rolled up and like just the way that he would move and like the, the smile on his face just sort of like lit up his performances and made the dancing seem almost casual, even though he was such a perfectionist. And mm. I, I think of Fred Astaire as being maybe more light on his feet. Mm. Like that it's just he's kind of sailing around the room. Um, but he's like universally acknowledged as the better dancer, right? Fred Astaire. The more skilled. I, I mean, I, I really don't know. Uh, I mean, they're both incredible. Yeah. And I think it was uh, it was just like maybe first exposure uh, favorite. And like it's one of those things that I sort of, as I watch more movies, I was like, Gene Kelly's definitely in better movies. 
across the board than Fred <laughs> yes. Astaire. I mean, like, you know, Fred like, Astaire has like two great Fred movies. Fred Astaire has like a handful of great movies, like for sure. And like Top a Pat and Swing Time are both great. Yeah. And The Gay Divorcee, so three. Oh, and Bandwagon. I mean, uh, he oh, has bandwagon. many, yeah. many good Thank movies. You, and many good movies for sure. But like mm-hmm. Gene Kelly, it's like the filmography is just unreal. Right. The, I mean, the pirate Gene Kelly, you're not attracted to oh Gene Kelly. Oh, my goodness. Pirate. Yeah. I mean, no. I, I mean, <laughs> no. I, I, no, it's like the thing is, like, it's, it's he not directed as if them, I don't not get the pirate, it, but you know, yeah, yeah. It's just there's something smirking and smug yeah. and like protesting too much about him mm. that I just am not I, I, into. I totally get it. I totally yeah. get it. Yeah. I overlook those things. And like, and again, you know, we're talking about comfort movies, but you know, Brigadier, I mean, yeah, you could comfort movies. It for me is the filmography of Vincent Minnelli. Oh yes. yeah. You know, just and from start to finish. The yeah. clock. I mean, the, I almost well, the, chose the clock. The clock yeah. is actually a definitely comfort film. Some home from the hell. Home from the Hills, not. Yeah. Two Weeks in Another Town is not. Yeah. But they're obviously like. Yeah. Incredible. I mean, Brigadoon is a tearjerker. Yeah. Um, and that, I was thinking of that one particularly because it has like an insane uh, Gene Kelly performance. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, an American in Paris. I mean, if that's on TV, I can't turn the channel. There's just something in every scene that draws you in. I mean, yeah, there is not like a Vincent Minnelli movie that I can turn off. I mean, I'll, I'll watch The Sandpiper. I, I mean, I, I recently watched The Sandpiper just because I got stuck. I'm not yeah, a Sandpiper fan, <laughs> I have to admit. Oh I also God. have a hard time getting through Designing Woman. Oh, I like, yeah, I haven't seen it in a long time, but. Like, actually, like, I had to watch in, like, 10-minute chunks. I had such a hard time getting through it. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I will admit... It might be a Lauren Bacall thing. Not one of my favorites. Yeah, the one neither. with Catherine Hepburn I'm not crazy about. Oh, Undercurrent? Undercurrent. That's a really strange movie. Yeah. That plot is bonkers. Robert Mitchum, too. Yeah, oh, I forgot, because it's not Pantheon. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, yeah, but, like, that is, yeah. you know... I love the long, long trailer. Oh, oh, that's true. Which that is, is so another funny. comedy of chaos. That well, I oh my just god! Love. Also, just Lucille Ball is oh the ultimate god. comfort in every way. Yes. So it, I mean, a Lucille Ball, Dizzy Arnaz movie directed by Vincent Minnelli. How could anything be more joyful? Ugh. Yeah. Maybe we should just leave it at that. Yes. Oh no! Wait, I had, I had a great idea for a. Oh, double or triple feature, I can't remember, but I know two of them were The Long Long Trailer and Sorcerer. Oh, <laughs> oh that's amazing. That's brilliant. Yeah. So, that's brilliant. I think there might be one more, but I can't remember <laughs> where it is at the moment. Oh, my, but that's got to happen. <laughs> yeah, just yeah. like... So yeah. Wages of Fear isn't allowed in there? Well, you know, you could do Wages of Fear or Sorcerer, but... Sorcerer. 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 Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People are willing to admit that's good again, so... Or finally ready to admit that it's good. Well... You know, like you, Michael, I, well, actually, no, like you, Nellie, I was somebody who, when I would actually go to sleepovers, I would, you know, it was sort of like, now is our chance to be bad, to quote a great line from The Simpsons. And so what we would generally watch were things that we shouldn't be watching. And for me, that was generally like horror films, thrillers, but they're always like really bad I know what you did last summer too, <laughs> um, which is what I really uh, vividly remember. Uh, Are you young? You what? watched that at a sleepover? Mm-hmm. Uh, that was like an older sleepover. Brandy is in 
too. Yes, she is. Speaking of great performers. That's a comfort. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> and then another one I remember, the the Michael Crichton movie with the ape. Congo. Congo. Oh, terrible yeah. film. Terrible. Yeah, yeah. These I saw are, that in the theater. Yeah. Not fun. Probably also saw the snake one. Anaconda. Anaconda. Oh, like, J-Lo. Yeah. Yeah. John Voight. And John Voight. Yes. Again, I was not really allowed to watch horror horror films even though i was watching the x-files every week with my aunt and there was like so much fucked up shit in those episodes like home which is about the incestuous family and they almost didn't rebroadcast it when the show was sort of like a texas chainsaw massacre the woman under the she's on our board yeah so gross i couldn't that was something i watched as a kid and actually scared me so much i it like i couldn't watch x-files anymore see i kept watching which it's like, oh, it's the old Violet. You can't watch the R-rated movie, but the uh, the old lady on the rolly thing. Oh, it's fine. It's on TV. <laughs> it's on network TV. It, uh, the white fish that comes out of the toilet. That monster. Totally fine. Anyway, so you know, that's I I I, I thought I would like become less scared by watching horror films, and then I eventually just grew to love them. And uh, one of those that I loved, loved, loved watching with uh, friends is uh, the thing. John Carpenter. And there's just something about it that is just so perfect. And part and, and obviously, um, you know, he when it came out, it was a huge failure. It was really released in 1982. Uh, there was another big alien movie that around that time called E.T. And apparently people in the Regan era just wanted to like embrace the good feelings and not necessarily uh, see the alien <laughs> that is shape shifting and turns into like a spider monster dog. And then the guy's head pops off and then the guy gets his arms cut off at the elbow, get chomped by the thing. But every time I watch it, it is just as thrilling as the first time I saw it. It's a really great movie to show people for the first time. It was yes. it was that way in the 80s, and it's that way now, because mm-hmm. the practical effects are so spectacular exactly. that people who aren't used to that Rob kind Botton of thing... Rob is a fucking genius. But the, but the like newer generations of people who watch movies are not used to that level of Absolutely tactile not. special no. effect, and it shocks people to this day. It is That's exactly correct. It Just the way that... And especially because like Rob Botton, he's very famous. He did this effect in The Howling, which is something I just saw for the first time recently, where multiple people transform into werewolves. And the transformation is not like done through cuts. You see the actor go from the actor to sort of their face bubbling out Mm. into these. But did you see an American Werewolf in London? Because that. Is like that was the same year as the Howling, and I don't know which one's released first, but that's the that's the one I think that was considered the revolutionary practical effect werewolf transformation. Yeah. But I don't know which movie came first. They were released the I same remember, year. I remember reading about this that there were multiple. I think there was like a third or fourth werewolf movie the same year. <laughs> it was and a, it, <laughs> no, it was like a thing where it was like competition for like special effects yeah. around werewolf stuff, yeah. and like who was going to do what, and like a lot of them were very impressive. Yeah, but it was like a. a a boom year for werewolf special effects. Well, and especially yeah. like, especially like right the there. howling, the howling head, like it's literally like a whole town of werewolves, which is, which when I saw it, I was like, how is this? What the 
fuck is this? Like, it's insane to me that this was a movie that they put out into like just theaters because the whole conceit of it is so nuts. But anyway, back to the thing. <laughs> can um, I just say, considering uh, the recent comment, you have been particularly potty mouth tonight. Oh. Maybe it's the sleepover. It's our opportunity to be bad, or what did we just say? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Unlike all the other podcasts. Yeah, so Rob Button's like effects are so spectacular because they're just like, it's not like they're hidden in the dark when you see these transformations in the film, it's not like they're underlit or, but they're also not happening in the shadows, like the fog, like there's not literally fog covering up what's happening. It's pretty out in the open and they're just so, as you say, Michael, they're so tactile and so just imaginative and impressive. And just the way that the actors, like all the characters in the, in the film, there's this moment when they see it transform and like it becomes, you know, like a blossom opens up and it's lined with dog tongues and dog teeth and it like comes <laughs> and out. The, and, the, and the characters in the movie say Freaks. what the audience is thinking. They say, you got to be fucking kidding me. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know what and that thing is in there, but it's weird and pissed off. <laughs> like, it's like, it's like, but it's yeah. interesting to talk about this because I think great special effects used to be a reason we would rewatch movies and that's mm-hmm. completely over. Yes. That's completely over. Yeah. When's the last time you were amazed by something in a movie, but on a technical level, on a special effects level? I remember growing up, we, I would you had, to, you had to rewatch Terminator Two, you had to rewatch Jurassic Park, you had to rewatch mm-hmm. The Abyss, mm-hmm. uh, Young Sherlock Holmes, mm-hmm. like all these movies that were pushing the envelope yeah. because they did something no other film had done, and that kind of that sense of wonder. It's gone. And for, at least in that realm is, is pretty much gone. Yeah. But I do think well, a movie like that. people who thing... rewatched Billy Lynn's Halftime Walk. <laughs> Can I say that I watched <laughs> Billy Lynn's long halftime walk after all the hype about that high, high def. I watched it on a plane for the oh. first time. The worst possible way to watch it. Mm-hmm. Probably a mistake. Did you like the story? Did you like his halftime walk? It, it didn't do it for me. He should have stayed on the sidelines, you say? Yes. Okay. Well, and the, the only other thing that I'll say about the film is obviously it's very tightly plotted. And John Carpenter always said that the star of the film was the thing, the special effects, which totally goes back to what you were just talking about. But Kurt Russell is just so, he's kind of blank. And in the original script, he had like way more traits and you know, Carpenter cut out a lot of those things. Like, you know, there's only that the very funny scene towards the beginning where uh, McCready, who, Kurt Russell's character, is playing chess and he gets pissed off because he loses and he just dumps his scotch on the rocks into the computer and blows it up. In the original script, he was like obsessed with chess and he had like a blow up doll, smoked big cigars and he had all these dumb affectations. And in the film, he's just sort of this blank every man who has to try and rise to the occasion. Like, he's not this mastermind. Obviously, if you are a big fan of playing chess, play it all the time, you're probably, like, strategically minded. You can figure all these things out. Instead, he's just sort of, like, a few steps behind all the time. And he's trying, and by the time they sort of get to the point where he can figure out how to control it, it means just totally decimating the camp. And God bless you, John Carpenter. You're wonderful. Should we say a movie we saw recently that we liked, or can we skip it? Let's, let's do it quickly. I'll go first. I saw The Other Side of Hope, which is the Aki Kurismaki film, and that's wonderful. Like all of his films, it's very deadpan and very exquisitely composed, and there are times where you're like laughing at something, and then you'll 
want to start crying and vice versa. And it's all totally earned. And um, it's just a really beautiful film that everyone should see on a big screen. Um, I saw Paul Schrader's first Reformed today, which I, I went in, you know, optimistic, although I don't always love his films. That is totally a safe thing to say. Yeah. (laughs) No, I mean, I I don't always love his films. Uh, But, uh, you know, I went in hearing that it was good and it kind of blew me away how great it is. It is like sort of up my alley in so many ways that I almost, um, you know, it's hard to know how much of it is just like so like my shit (laughs) I of course loved it anyways it's great coming to theaters at some point (laughs) I really love Western by Valesco Griesbach I didn't go in with high hopes in terms of how much I would enjoy the film because actually Westerns they're a genre that I they're probably the genre that I um, see as my biggest blind spot and I don't really warm to them at all Um, or get them, but, and this was sort of billed as a contemporary reading on the genre or appropriation of some of the characteristics of the genre. Um, But I was really blown away by it, particularly by the way it uses the mutual unintelligibility of two different languages in the dialogue. Most of the film is centered around dialogue where the two parties don't understand each other. And I thought that was incredible, but sort of layered on top of that are the richest sort of interactions and such complex, politically complex, ideologically complex, but also emotionally um, incredibly intricate um, interactions. Some of the most wonderful scenes that I've seen in a film all year. So I highly recommend it. I'll just mention an older film that I just rewatched because... I watched it a lot and because it's great. I'm not gonna. It, it would not be a comfort film, um, but it's one of my favorite films, which is The Seventh Victim, the uh, 1943. Yeah, see, ooh, if you haven't seen that, listener, it makes people go ooh. It's a Val Luton film um, directed by Mark Robeson, 1943. Um, a completely enveloping, terrifying, unlike anything else movie about. Um, a young woman who goes missing in Greenwich Village and her sister has to leave her boarding school to find her and discovers that she's fallen in with, like Rosemary's Baby, a cabal of Satanists. It's actually funny that you mentioned that it's not a comforting film because talk about a movie where the plot isn't clicking together with each turn. <laughs> It's true. It, it keeps, not that it takes anything away, but it just gets more. It keeps disorienting yeah. you, yeah. Yeah. one turn to the next, and it ends on the in the most almost subliminally terrifying ending that is about as far from a comfort as any Hollywood movie has ever ended. Ending on that note. Well, thanks for uh, sleeping over. Thank you. It's been so comfy. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rippold, with music by Greg Anji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, 
Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine, or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, and Kindle at filmcomment.com slash app. Magnolia Pictures is proud to release The Square, the new film from force majeure director Ruben Ostland. Called Savagely Entertaining by the Los Angeles Times and Outlandishly Funny by Time Magazine, the Golden Globe-nominated The Square is currently playing at the Film Society of Lincoln Center and in theaters across the country. The Sundance Film Festival is returning to Park City, Utah, January 18th through the 28th. Check out the newly announced program of world premiere films virtual reality, and special events. Plus, get the lowest rates on lodging at sundance.org festival.